Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to another edition of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. The Andrew Lawton Show, Tuesday, March 8th, 2022. Big day, big week, lots of stuff going on, especially the conservative leadership race, which I I said last week or two weeks ago, whenever it was, that I'm not going to get into the horse race thing. I'm not going to start talking about, ooh, you know, this person's campaigning in Chatham-Kent-Leamington, and oh, this person's in Calgary-Shepherd, and oh, got to pay attention to what's happening in Burnaby South or anything like that. No, I'm not going to horse race, but I am going to talk about the big ideas. I am going to talk about the big trends. We're going to be having, starting, I think, on next show, some of the people that are in the leadership race coming on to talk about their campaigns. We're also in the process of putting together some bigger projects connected to covering the leadership campaign and the leadership race, so you don't want to miss that. But we do have some movement on this front just in the last couple of days. We have Jean Charest all but certainly going to be announcing a campaign on Thursday at an event in Calgary. We've got uh, Tasha Carradine, the columnist and commentator, saying she's not running. She's throwing her support behind Jean Charest. You've got a tweet that I just saw earlier today that Patrick Brown is apparently going to run. He's the mayor of Brampton, and he was actually a guest on this show a few weeks back criticizing lockdowns. So he's apparently getting into the race. What else? Leslin Lewis, she announced a campaign about four hours ago. Pierre Polyev still in the race. So I think at this point we've got confirmed or likely to be confirmed soon, Pierre Polyev, Patrick Brown, Leslin Lewis, and Jean Charest. So it'll be a bit more interesting than I think the race in 2020 was, but you never know, and we could still have a a curveball thrown our way and, and someone else getting into the race, but we will be covering that. So do stay tuned to True North. Keep your eyes peeled as we have stuff along that line coming out in the days and weeks ahead. I want to talk to a few, we're going to talk about a few things today. This is like one of those shows where we just decided we're just going to go around the world rather than taking one big story. But I do want to start out with a big story, one we have been following for quite some time, and that is Tamara Leach, who I am happy to say, if you haven't seen the visuals of this, is finally out of jail. She's finally out of custody. She has been released on bail two and a half weeks after she was first arrested in Ottawa and put behind bars for what the police say and charged her with counseling mischief. So not committing mischief, counseling mischief. I think they upgraded the charge to one where she was also being charged with mischief the next day, but they arrested her on the offense of allegedly counseling mischief, put her behind bars, and denied her bail. They they sent Chris Barber, one of the other Freedom Convoy organizers, home, but they kept Tamara Leach behind bars. They denied her bail. They had another bail hearing last week, and she had another surety, And apparently the judge this time around, who was a different judge, was more convinced by this surety and is convinced that the situation has changed, the circumstances have changed, and they believe that Tamara Leach will make good on her promise to get in the car and go home. So I think when she was released, she had 24 hours to leave Ottawa and 72 hours to leave Ontario or or something to that effect. But basically she has to get back home. She can't fly because she, as I understand it, is not vaccinated. So at this point, at this exact moment, Tamara Leach is free. And the title of this show, 
Uh, Tamara Leach is out on bail, but she's still a political prisoner. There are two components of that that I want to get into here. The first, I was going to say Tamara Leach is free, and then I realized a moment before we were to go to air that I can't actually make that claim. She's not free. She has still been charged. She is still likely to face trial for this protest, for her role in overseeing and fundraising for the Freedom Convoy protest. So she's not free. She's not out of the woods. She still faces prosecution by the state for presiding over a peaceful protest, a protest that right up until the end remained peaceful, at least on the part of the protesters, on the part of the demonstrators. And that, I think, is a very important point here. We are talking about a woman who has been arrested. And if you listen to the Crown talk about why she should remain behind bars, the Crown's view on this is that they wanted to throw the book at her. The judge she had at first, uh, Judge Bourgeois, which uh, when, when the Bourgeois justice or Justice Bourgeois is jailing the working class protester, I cannot think of a, a better metaphor for just the absurdity of this. But, but Justice Bourgeois was saying, oh, she's facing a lot of jail time for this. Really? She is? You're, you're going to preemptively decide that she is going to be spending more than likely a lot of time behind bars? That was one of the reasons that Justice Bourgeois denied Tamara Leach bail in the first place. Now, this judge was more measured, still had some criticisms about Tamara Leach and about the case, and, and did have some kind things to say about Justice Bourgeois' findings in some particular area. So it wasn't a complete overturning in the sense of, of like reversing it, but it was reversing the outcome. It was overturning the outcome. But the judge who decided Tamara Leach should be released yesterday has just released her on bail. She still has a number of conditions, a number of terms that she has to abide by. And the point that I can't stress enough is that she is not yet out of the woods. So if the Crown keeps up it, it, this rhetoric, if the Crown maintains the tone it's taken and the line it's taken to, to Mara Leach in the bail hearings throughout the trial, she is going to be like subjected to a very vicious and very vigorous prosecution. But the point that I wanted to spend a couple of moments on here is that there is no denying she is a political prisoner. If you wanted to have a government response to immediately deal with the situation when there were blockades, I could understand. I'm not saying I would agree with it. I could understand government throwing the books at people in that moment. And this was the whole thrust behind the Emergencies Act, again, which was wrong. I'm convinced that it was an illegal invocation of the Emergencies Act, but nonetheless, it's what Justin Trudeau decided to do. When the blockade was done, Everyone should have been released. When the blockade ended, people should have been released from jail. Accounts should have been unfrozen. The Emergencies Act should have never been there. But since it was there, it should have been gone that very moment. Once police moved all the trucks off of Wellington Street, that should have been the end of it. Why is the prosecution still going on? Tamara Leach embarrassed the government. This was a grandmother, a 49-year-old Métis grandmother from Alberta, whose supposed crime is getting in a truck, setting up a GoFundMe, and saying, hold the line when the government started to close in. That's her crime. That's what put her behind bars. That's what put this woman in jail. She got in a truck, she drove to Ottawa, she said, hold the line, and she, by setting up a GoFundMe, raised $10 million twice for truckers. Money which, by the way, the government is still in a way controlling. The government is still maintaining its freeze on the funds. So GoFundMe, 
that money was refunded by GoFundMe. The give, send, go money is still sitting, as I understand it, in American bank accounts because the government will not let it come into Canada without seizing it. The million dollars that GoFundMe had released already to Tamara Leach and Benjamin Dichter, that money has been frozen by the bank. And now because there's this class action lawsuit against uh, the convoy organizers by people in downtown Ottawa, uh, that money is still remaining frozen. So all of these measures that government is still enforcing, even in the absence of a protest. And that's why it is completely fair to say Tamara Leach is a political prisoner. Her crime is embarrassing the government. Because that's the enduring legacy right now. Government humiliation, government embarrassment, a government that has lost legitimacy that has lost legitimacy in the minds of so many people, especially on the COVID file. And again, I've talked about all the successes, some of which can be attributed to the convoy. Others you can say may have been happening already, but vaccine passports being lifted. You have much more forceful opposition from the Conservative Party of Canada, which again is a big win for a lot of people that were saying the Conservative Party had been absent on a lot of these issues. And I realized the PPC had been the only party speaking up about these things. But again, the PPC did not have anyone in the legislature. So I'm talking about just the volume of political response here, which has improved since the onset of the convoy. Again, vaccine passports gone somewhere. We've got much firmer timelines for lifting remaining restrictions elsewhere. And every time I bring this up, I always get emails from people in British Columbia. I feel so sad, so sad for British Columbians here because BC used to be in a way, the glimmer of hope. It was never perfect. But BC didn't go full lockdown like places outside of BC did, like Ontario notably did, like Quebec did. BC had always been the holdout in a way. And now we have, alternatively, BC being the last holdout for vaccine passports and for restrictions. And BC actually right now focusing on adding restrictions. They're still planning on proceeding with mandates for public sector workers, for some public sector workers. And I think this is the fascinating development here. So I'm going to read this because the, the latest has just come out in a, a statement, but it still is, I think, an interesting one because Bonnie Henry, I think it was last week, said even before BC had dropped restrictions that, well, you know, uh, they're probably going to be coming back. So this was the line that we got. Basically, don't get comfortable even if we drop restrictions. But the latest development on this and I just, the, the problem with doing a live show is that sometimes I have so many tabs open and I want to make sure that I get the quote right here. Here it is. Uh, it's an order that requires all healthcare practitioners to report their vaccination status to their respective colleges. The colleges will then share it with the ministry, which will verify the information against their vaccination registry. So if you have a regulatory college, you're going to have to provide them your vaccination status. They're going to check it with the government. And if the government says, oh, well, this is not a, a valid vaccination status or this is not a person that we have on our registry, who knows? Maybe the, uh, the colleges say, all right, we're going to challenge your license. But the whole point is that while other places are getting rid of restrictions, you have BC that's doubling and tripling down and proceeding with even more of them. So no one is out of the woods yet. And this is why the convoy existed. This is why people were protesting. 
because they were seeing, even if it appeared we were moving beyond a lot of this stuff, there were still remnants of this in existence in government policy at the federal level, at the provincial level. Uh, just this morning, Pierre Polyev, the conservative leadership candidate, published a letter he sent to Justin Trudeau saying, uh, drop all the federal mandates. And also what you need to do is start telling the provinces, encouraging the provinces to drop their mandates, because a lot of this is integrated. And yes, most of the restrictions are at the provincial level, but it goes in both directions. And that's the point of it here. So we can't talk about this as though it's just a one outlier at one particular government level. No, a lot of these things are, are very much blended. So uh, my again, my condolences to people in BC. I love BC. It's a beautiful province. I've spent a lot of time there. Uh, not uh, not in a little while. I haven't been there in maybe two years, a year and a year and 10 months or so. But I hope I hope uh, you get to round the corner on this quite soon. I want to turn the page here uh, because there was a, a private member's bill I wanted to talk about here by Garnet Jenis, the Conservative MP from Sherwood Park, Fort Saskatchewan, to address political discrimination under the Federal Human Rights Act. So if you're not familiar with it, the Human Rights Act has a number of grounds of discrimination, prohibited grounds of discrimination. Notably, this was changed, I think, last in, what was would it have been, 2017, when gender identity was added in. But it's all of these criteria against which the government or federally regulated industries cannot discriminate. Uh, Garnet Janice wants to add political discrimination. We'll talk about what that means right now. The Conservative MP for Sherwood Park, Fort Saskatchewan, joins me. Garnet, good to talk to you, sir. What are you talking about here? Thank you for the opportunity to, to share with you, Andrew. Always a pleasure to be on your show. So, the as you mentioned, the Canadian Human Rights Act has various criteria in it uh, in terms of, of basis on which you're not allowed to discriminate against people. And uh, I would like to add political belief and activity as prohibited grounds of discrimination. So uh, if your employer sees that you're uh, volunteering for the NDP, maybe that applies to some of your some of your listeners, uh, then they um, then they can't be fired for doing that. Uh, if somebody is posting uh, commentary about political issues on their social media uh, and uh, somebody wants to deny them government services or deny them equal access to, uh, uh, to something they would otherwise be entitled to on the basis of that, just as you can't be discriminated against on the ba basis of your, uh, your race, your uh, religious views, uh, I, I would like to say as well that people shouldn't be discriminated on the basis of their, of their political views. And, and on some level, uh, it should be obvious why that is is, that is uh, valid, that, that uh, people should not uh, face arbitrary discrimination by uh, private companies, by service providers on the basis of their uh, political views. It's not fair to them. Uh, but also, let's talk about what uh, creates a, a, a constructive uh, democratic conversation. It's one in which people uh, as individuals are free to bring their views into the conversation uh, without worrying about intimidation that they might face uh, from service providers who they rely on or, or from their employers. Uh, corporations shouldn't be able to have an outsized role in our political debates by uh, compelling their employees to be involved in a certain way or to be silent about certain opinions that they have. Um, so so really, this, this would be a good bill to put forward at any time. Uh, obviously, I am putting it forward in a context where we're seeing a, uh, a real sharpening of the political conversation. And I think some efforts to punish people who have uh, what are deemed the wrong views. Uh, so I think it's in that context that looking at addressing political discrimination is particularly important. 
I know that most of the human rights commissions that people hear about that are governing landlord-tenant issues or someone uh, discriminate, discriminated against on the job market, whatever the case is, are dealt with at the provincial level. So jurisdictionally speaking, who is it that falls under the Canadian Human Rights Act? That's right. Great, great question. So uh, in terms of comparing federal and provincial, I, I do want to say, though, just uh, kind of uh, connected to that, is that most provinces have some degree of protection uh, for people on the basis of their political views. There are a few provinces that don't, um, but, uh, but most provinces and territories have that kind of protection. Uh, there is no such protection at the federal level. So in federal jurisdiction, we're talking about uh, federally regulated commerce, uh, so, uh, so banking, uh, interprovincial transportation, um, uh, and of course, the direct action of the federal government uh, would apply as well. So it's it's a minority of the economy in terms of the private sector that's uh, that's regulated by uh, by federal human rights legislation. Um, my understanding is that social media companies would fall under federal jurisdiction. So that's a, a significant potential area where people... Well, I mean, especially if the liberal government gets their way and, and brings all of these online publishing uh, avenues under the ambit of the CRTC, right? <laughs> that's right. So uh, this this bill would prevent the CRTC from uh, from from uh, discriminating. And, and in any case where you have a human rights complaint, uh, there may be arguments back and forth about whether it was it was a, about the criteria that that you f are claiming it is right someone uh someone might get fired and say they were discriminating against me because of their uh, my religion and the employer might say no it had nothing to do with that it was because uh he wasn't uh, doing a good job or whatever it was and, and then there would be this this back and forth and, and the same question could apply in the case of of, uh, of political discrimination but either way it it does open the door to say that you know if if someone is being fired from their job, denied service, if they're uh, being censored, if, if they're facing uh, denial of service on the basis of or what seems to be the basis of their political views, that that is analogous to other areas where we prohibit, uh, prohibit discrimination. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, we were talking about the convoy earlier in the show, and the banks were following a, a federal regulation, and not one that I defend, and I know not one that you defend in the Emergencies Act, but theoretically, if a bank were to say, uh, you know what, we don't like this protest that your bank accounts are tied to, you could conceivably file a complaint under your bill if this passed. Yeah, so uh, it, it would be possible for someone uh, who, who felt they'd been discriminated against on their political views by their uh, by their bank. Let's say you had a clear cut case where um, where certain not for profits uh, were being given accounts by a bank, and then they were being denied to other not for profits that that had a, a, a different kind of uh, political persuasion. Um, and and certainly, if individuals were were facing uh, a denial of service as a result of their political views or political activism, and and I I will say outright that um, that while I had begun working on this legislation prior to the the convoy movement and the use of the Emergencies Act, uh, some of the things that happened in the context of that debate uh, really uh, spurred me on, and I know have have led a lot of people to connect the dots in terms of why this is so important, uh, because. Um, Look, pe people shouldn't break the law for any reason, but people were being treated very differently who were connected with one uh, kind of protest versus other kinds of protest. That's that's very clear. Uh, that that uh, there was a there was a differential application of uh, of of approach by the government uh, that reflected the different politics of those who were involved in these things, and that's something that. Um, that, that we shouldn't be seeing in Canada, uh, people who, who, who donate to a political cause, especially 
having donated before any blockading had even started, uh, the fact that they had to fear for possible action against their bank accounts uh, was was not right and uh, speaks to the need for greater protection against discrimination on the basis of people's political views. Again, I, I'm not a, a firm believer in cancel culture, but let me just play the devil's advocate here. Does a bill like this protect people who have beliefs that, again, an employer or a service provider might have good reason to not want to associate with? Yeah, so let me let me address that in, in, in a few different ways. Number one, uh, it's important to, to put in the caveat that Section 15 of the Human Rights Act has an exclusion for what are called bona fide occupational qualifications. That is, if if you need to make a distinction within employment uh, on the basis of some of the criteria because of the nature of the job, then you're allowed to do it. So like, a, you know, some CBC reporter couldn't be like, yes, I want to be a, a raging political activist on my off time. So that could be carved out. Right. So, so um, yeah, I mean, I was going to say in, in the existing criteria, you can't discriminate on the basis of religion. But if you're hiring someone for your local church, you might say we're hiring people that share the worldview of, of, of the church, right? And similar for political views, uh, for, for MPs' offices, for, uh, for uh, not-for-profit organizations, like, um, you know, if, if you or I, Andrew, put in an application to work at uh, the David Suzuki Foundation, we would probably be disqualified on the basis of our political views, and, and I'm okay with that, right? I think, I think a not-for-profit organization that's involved in, in activism should be able to say you, you line up with what we're, what we're doing or not. And similarly, you mentioned there's some jobs that might require political neutrality. Like if you're working for Elections Canada or if you're going to be a judge, political activity could be a barrier, not because they're looking for people that are one way or the other, but because you've got to be, you've got to be neutral. So, uh, so th there's lots of areas where that might apply. It might apply in government relations where a company's saying we're looking for to, to hire, you know, a, a mix of people who have different political persuasions. So, so, so th those things can be worked out. I think what we're really talking about is if, um, if somebody is uh, is a uh, working in a non-political workplace, or they're just trying to access government services, uh, they shouldn't be fired on the basis of their political views. The other thing is, uh, this bill would not change hate speech laws. It wouldn't change laws around ideally ideologically motivated crime. Uh, so if somebody is uh, uh, if somebody is is uh, um, is involved in in prosecutable hate speech, uh, they're not going to enjoy protection under under this uh, under this law. And you can have the separate debate about about where the lines should be in terms of hate speech. Now, generally, I don't think that um, private sector employers are the ones to be enforcing those kinds of hate speech laws. I mean, I think we would want those to be enforced neutrally by civil authorities. We want to decide, you know, what is the speech that 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 we agree democratically isn't allowed and it shouldn't be uh it shouldn't be up to someone's employer to have to or or be expected to make those determinations so so there's the area of bona fide occupational qualifications there's the area of hate speech that's um that's already established so i think those are uh those are just some important clarifications in terms of how this would work the, the libertarian in me comes out here though and has to ask how is this not just expanding the power of this bureaucracy the canadian human rights commission well i, I think um in, a, in the context where we provide protection against all kinds of other forms of discrimination, uh, it is it is logical to see political views as as protected uh, as being sort of analogous to some of the the other grounds that are there. Um, but, but Andrew, I'd say as well that that from again from a libertarian perspective, this is this is protecting liberty, right? It's protecting the liberty of people to not be punished on the job or in terms of their access to government services for 
being involved in expressing their, uh, their, their, their political views. I don't think anybody wants uh, the, the kind of democracy where big corporations can shape the conversation. Um, and, and I think we need to be wise to the fact that there's this phenomenon, and there's a, a, an author in the U.S. who wrote, wrote a great book called Woke Inc. His name is Vivek Ramaswamy. I would recommend that book to your, uh, your, um, your, your viewers. And he, he talks about this phenomenon of woke capitalism where – Large corporations have a close relationship with government. Sometimes they're directly pressured by government to take these uh, sort of woke social justice positions that advance certain causes. And then they use their market power, their corporate position, to push those ideas onto their employees and onto the wider public. And it's not democratic. Uh, it's not um, consistent with uh, with with the principles of, of individual liberty at all. Uh, so, so we... We, we have to recognize the steps that are required to protect the space for democracy and liberty. And that means protecting the right of employees, uh, the right of those who rely on, on government and other services uh, to go out and express their views, to, to speak truth to power, uh, to challenge governments and corporations with, uh, with, with ideas that may not be popular with them. Uh, that's, that's, um, I think that's consistent with a with a substantive commitment to liberty, not just not just saying liberty means doing nothing. No, liberty means having that substantive commitment to providing protection for liberty against the threats that exist to it. Yeah, that's fair. And, and I will add on that, looking at the case law from the Supreme Court of Canada on speech issues, on freedom of expression, they've been pretty consistent that political speech is the most worthy of, of protection. It deserves a very high level of protection because of the importance of political speech. So you are right to point out it's a curious gap if we do have this legislation that it exists, a bureaucracy and a, an infrastructure that already exists to protect people against discrimination that is not included there. Uh, that bill is C2. 257, a private member's bill from Garnet Jenis, the Conservative MP for Sherwood Park, Fort Saskatchewan. Garnet, always a pleasure, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Take care. All right. Thank you. Yeah, I actually, I wrote a column the other day and I was again talking more about provincial human rights commissions. I was talking about the idea of uh, whether provincial business or not provincial businesses, but businesses should be allowed under provincial law to uh, decide for themselves they want to allow vaccination proof of requirement or proof of vaccination as a requirement. The words all get jumbled in every uh, single provincial legislation. So now I'm doing the fun jumbling on my own. But, and, and again, the position I took was the, the libertarian position on that, which is, yes, we should allow businesses to make these decisions for themselves. But I put the caveat there that the barrier to that in other cases is these provincial human rights commissions. Now, they're slightly different than the federal one because the federal one applies to spaces that are specifically regulated by the federal government as it is. Uh, but to Garnet's point, he was saying that if we're already going to have this thing protecting people in all these different categories, why isn't political opinion one of those categories? So you can decide for yourselves there. I want to shift gears to a topic that I'm going to just be fully, fully candid with you on. I am still learning a fair bit about, and that is cryptocurrency. Now, I've had people in my life that have been trying to sell me on crypto, not sell me crypto, but sell me on crypto for uh, several years. And I, I'm someone who knows a bit about technology. I'm not a Luddite, but I also, I know what I know. And sometimes I'm okay keeping myself away from the latest trends. I don't have a TikTok, if that's what you're, uh, if that's what you're wondering. I don't know if any of you were wondering that. But anyway, when the whole thing happened with the trucker convoy, I actually, for the first time said, you know what, I'm going to start a Bitcoin wallet. 
And I'm not one of these people that was worried that my account was going to get frozen. I, I knew it was a possibility because, you know, theoretically anyone's could have been. But I said, I'm going to get a Bitcoin wallet. I've got the equivalent of, I think, like $110 in the Bitcoin wallet. So I, if, you, if you have access to my Bitcoin wallet, there's not much in there. But I am fascinated by it. And we've seen a greater discussion about it because of what the federal government did. And a lot of people that have been emailing me saying, uh, you know, you should do a story on cryptocurrency, you should do a story on Bitcoin. And we've had some politicians that have started to take note of this as well. Notably, one of them is Michelle Rempel-Garner, the Conservative Member of Parliament. And I find this quite interesting because... The whole point of crypto to some people is to avoid government regulation. And for governments, that's why they have such an aversion to it. David Clement, who is the North American Affairs Manager for the Consumer Choice Center, had an op-ed about this in the Hamilton Spectator. He joins me on the line now. So David, let's start first off here. Is it true right now that cryptocurrency is just the Wild West in Canada? There's no regulation, no oversight. That's the perception of it that I see circulating. No, it is not the Wild West. Um, it is not completely unregulated. Um, there are plenty of exchanges who have gone through the, uh, an example would be the Ontario Securities Commission's process for them to be approved and, and operate um, within the bounds of what is currently legal. Um, as with any new industry or technology, there is a lot um, that operates on the outside um, of what is considered legal. And that is why I think Michelle Rempel Garner's uh, bill is a piece or is a, a step in the right direction because it starts the conversation about how should Canada um, regulate the cryptocurrency space. Um, and the reason why I co-authored that piece with my colleague Yael is that, in how many other instances of the economy has our federal government um, immediately overregulated something? I mean, look at our cannab legal cannabis market, just insanely overregulated. They completely overdid it from packaging to taxation. Um, and now we have this, this new emerging industry that more and more people are interested in. Um, there are headlines always about nefarious um, funding sources and, and Bitcoin being the means uh, for how those things are funded. Um, and so there's a lot of discussion to be had. And so we figured we would weigh in on what some, uh, some key policy uh, goals should be for whatever happens next after Michelle Rempel Garner's bill. I don't know if you can speak to this in the sense of if it requires kind of understanding people's hearts and minds here, but I'm curious about the landscape of cryptocurrency users, because you do have some people who only seem to like it because it seems to be outside of the reach of government. And I don't know how large or small a share that is of the broader population in Canada that is in some way involved in cryptocurrency. Yeah. I think if we were to have the, if we were having this conversation Eight years ago, that the answer would largely be your your assumption would be correct. It's mostly people who like the fact that it's outside of the system. Uh, I think in today's current climate, it is far more mainstream. Um, yeah, like you've got a crypto, you've got ETFs that have it on the the stock exchanges. Yep, exactly. You have major companies who are sponsoring sports stadiums who are um, proper regulated under the law, whether or not that law is too strict or not is up for debate. 
Um, so it is, it was very much mainstream. Uh, I mean, I joke, I hear from some of my friends who are like, yeah, my mom started to ask me about buying Bitcoin. Um, and that is like the other side of the equation is some people look at it as an investment vehicle, right? A lot of the, I think original, if you, if again, rewinding eight years, you would talk to someone who was really passionate about the philosophy of Bitcoin. They were mostly monetary policy arguments about a decentralized currency out of the hands of government uh, and envisioning a world where Bitcoin could be used to pay for things. And mm -hmm. in some senses, it was at the time. Um, it's kind of in between at the moment. It's one part, um, one part uh, kind of investment vehicle, one part a means to pay for anything uh, or donate. We saw that with the trucker convoy. Um, this is, again, this would sound crazy to someone who doesn't understand. I donated about $100 worth of Bitcoin to the treasury of the government of Ukraine um, in their fight against um, Russian invasion. Um, and I did so at a very low fee in 25 seconds. Um, so rapidly quicker than the banking system as it currently stands. Um, I moved money in the loose sense halfway around the world um, that could be used or monetized or held in a way that's going to help them in that fight. And so I only bring that up because there's a lot of people who, especially on the media side, who talk, they'll be like, oh, well, Bitcoin was used for this nefarious act or this nefarious group. Uh, what they often miss is that those are all arguments against cash. Uh, criminal networks always, like, always use cash. Um, and we don't seek to limit um, an ordinary person's access to cash because the Hells Angels used cash to buy guns. Um, and so this conversation, there's a lot of ground to cover in regards to what should be next. Uh, or some core principles in terms of ensuring that Canada is a place where the space can grow as, uh, as opposed to all of the industry seeking refuge elsewhere and growing elsewhere and generating that economic prosperity and commerce elsewhere. I know a lot of government discussions and white papers about cryptocurrency tend to focus on money laundering. Like you mentioned, they, they latch on to these examples. But but even in your case uh, of money moving for a humanitarian reason from your Bitcoin wallet to that of the government of Ukraine, that is still an area that government likes regulating, which is money coming in, money going out, even if it's not for nefarious purposes, even just for, I mean, I would argue taxation is a nefarious purpose, but that's another discussion. But but. but but again, United States, I had someone, so that $100 or so in Bitcoin that I have, uh, some of that came from a supporter of mine that said, I want to donate to you. They're from the U.S. Moving money between the Canada and, and U.S. banking systems is not quick. Yeah, it's very and, different. It, it's, yeah, it's, and, you, you can't e-transfer. So And PayPal, you have to pay an exorbitant fee or wait several days to get from a PayPal account to a bank account. And this happened in, I mean, it was basically instant. I know there's a, a confirmation process, but, but, but how does government respond to that while still keeping what it believes is important, which is some level of financial sovereignty? Well, I think it raises the question of, about how ridiculous some of those rules are in regards to cross-border transactions. I mean, if you're in the U.S., Venmo is 
widely available and for listeners who maybe don't know what Venmo is, it's essentially like tapping your phone um, or, or pushing a button to e-transfer to someone else's Venmo account in a matter of like 10 seconds. Um, where if you and I went for dinner or we went to grab a beer or a bite to eat, I could pay the bill and you could click send on the Venmo and it would be in my Venmo account in 10 seconds. Um, most Canadians right now rely on e-transfer, which is pretty clunky. If you're trying to go across borders, it requires um, other services like PayPal. It's incredibly difficult. Yeah, I mean, a lot of Americans are using wire transfers and checks still. Well, yeah, that's true. That is, that is true. Like to get across, I mean, yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, it is primarily wire transfer and check. And anyone who's deposited a check from the United States knows that it takes forever to clear here. And it's just very outdated. And that kind of highlights why there is some uh, attractiveness in the cryptocurrency space, because there's that level of convenience and speed and security that ensures things are happening at the snap of a finger. You know where it's going. You know how much is going where. Um, and you know quickly that the transaction has been done. And obviously, some bad some bad people are going to want to take advantage of that. Again, just like bad people take advantage of cash. Um, but I think for the most part now, the crypto spaces, people who are just generally interested in this, either as a means of exchange um, or as an investment vehicle or somewhere in that mushy middle where they don't really know, maybe they'll hold some and then... Uh, pay for something with some there. I think it was Colorado who announced last week, you could start to pay some of your state tax bill in Bitcoin. Um, And so we are very much mainstream and very quickly Canadian regulators are going to have to ask themselves some serious questions. Um, So things, I mean, some of the things that are important here is legal certainty. So ensuring that just because Bitcoin was used by a nefarious actor that we don't lump in the means of payment um, and then throw all of the other perfectly legitimate consumers under the bus. Um, The importance of technological neutrality, which is a really important one as the space continues to develop. There's very much the philosophy of permissionless innovation um, right now. And I use the example of how we listen to music Uh, You talk to our parents' generation, maybe they had vinyl records. Um, Imagine a government who had created policy to mandate that vinyl records was how people listen to music. You'd never have (laughs) the 8-track, the CD, the MP3 streaming. Um, And so in many senses, it's best to allow for that permissionless innovation. That's another big one. Um, and, And just creating an environment where... We have a light touch approach, and that should also, in my opinion, include taxation and not looking at this as another productive sector of the economy that the government can just seek its teeth into. Um, Because obviously we're talking, I mean, my own example of sending Bitcoin to Ukraine um, is it's very it's international and the businesses who operate in that in this space. very similarly to the online gambling world, which legislators in Canada have now come around to and sought to legalize because they knew everybody was doing it anyway, just with companies who were housed maybe in the Caribbean or elsewhere. 
Uh, and so that's really the choice we have to make. Do we go too far and overregulate and push people into other jurisdictions? Well, and create another layer of it too, right? Where it's just where it's like, oh yeah, they've overregulated this space, so we need to find another one, and and then it, it becomes uh, very cyclical in that way. Uh, we got to wrap things up there. David Clement is the North American Affairs Manager for the Consumer Choice Center. The op-ed he wrote with uh, Yael Osowski is at the Hamilton Spectator's website, thespec.com. Uh, David, thank you very much, sir. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right. With that, we have got to wrap things up here. Let me know what you think. Andrew at truenorthcanada.com is my email address. We will talk to you in a couple days' time here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.